following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in this series in Exodus. We've been in this series for a good chunk of the year now. We are coming down the home stretch, you'll be pleased to know. A few more to go. But we have journeyed through this book. We've journeyed with the Israelites from being a slave people in Egypt through to being a freed people at the foot of Mount Sinai. Uh, But that's only half the book of Exodus. That's generally what we think the book is, but that's only half the story. That only takes you up to about chapter 18 or 19 of 40. So then last week we looked at the Ten Commandments. Remember that? And that begins the second main theme in the book of Exodus, which is the law, the giving of the law. That takes up a big chunk of the rest of the book. And then today, we're looking at the third main theme in the book of Exodus, which is the tabernacle. This thing called the tabernacle that God instructs Israel to build, and that Israel then uh, constructs, and God's presence dwells in the tabernacle. And that takes up another big chunk of the book. So really, these three things, the Exodus journey, the law, and the tabernacle, are the three pillars of the book of Exodus. They are the three major themes on which this book is built. It's a helpful way, perhaps, to think about the overall story of Exodus, and we're looking today at the third of those pillars, the tabernacle. Now, this, the, the story of the tabernacle takes up about 13 chapters in the book, so we're not going to read it all, you'll be pleased to know, but it's helpful to read it in your own time, have a little bit of a look at these chapters from about chapter 25 all the way through to chapter 39. A lot of that is taken up with the tabernacle and all of these associated things. But I want to just read a couple of selected passages to give us a sense of what this was and how it worked and what it looked like. So we started in chapter 25 of Exodus, read a couple of verses here, and then we'll jump over to chapter 39 and do the end of the story. So chapter 25, verse 8, and this is God talking to Moses. Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And then flick over to chapter 39, verse 32. So all the work on the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, was completed. The Israelites did everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moses. The tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, frames, crossbars, posts, and bases, the covering of ram skins dyed red and the covering of another durable leather, and the shielding curtain, the Ark of the Covenant Law with its poles and the atonement cover, the table with all its articles and the bread of the presence, the pure gold lampstand with its row of lamps and all its accessories, and the olive oil for the light and the gold altar, the anointing oil, the fragrant incense, the curtain for the entrance to the tent, the bronze altar with its bronze grating, its poles and all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the curtains of the courtyard with its posts and Uh, bases and the curtain for the entrance to the courtyard, the ropes and tent pegs for the courtyard, all the furnishings for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting, and the woven garments worn for ministering in the sanctuary, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his son when serving as priests. The Israelites had done all the work just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses inspected the work and saw that they had done it just as the Lord had commanded. So Moses blessed them. Quite a lot involved in the tabernacle, isn't there? And basically what it comes down to when you cut through all of that description is we're talking about a tent, a big tent with two rooms 
and a whole lot of furniture and accessories in it. And wherever Israel went through the wilderness time, through the Sinai desert, they would take this portable tent with them, and wherever they pitched camp, they'd set up the tabernacle. So this really is relevant to those of you on the set up and pack down team, okay? This is your day. If you never realized how biblical set up and pack down is, just read the story of the tabernacle because Israel had to set up their own church too. You see, you thought it was just us. They had to set up their worship service. They had to set up, this is the place where Israel worshiped and it was a total mobile operation. So the setup team had to come in, set up the tabernacle with all of these furnishings. All of this stuff had to go exactly in the right place. And then when they broke camp, the pack down team came in, dismantled the whole thing, put it into road cases or whatever they had, and off they went. The one rule they had that we don't have is that if anyone touched some of the articles of the tabernacle, they would die. We don't have that rule yet. Could be coming. We've got some expensive gear here. But that's how they operated. This was a real makeshift operation, but the tabernacle was incredibly important to God, and it was important because this was the place where God designated for his own presence to come and dwell with his people. The whole story of Exodus... The whole story of the Bible, really, is the story of God becoming increasingly present with his people. He starts with the cloud and the fire, and he's leading them, and he's guiding them from the sky. And then he's not happy with that. He's not content with it. So he comes down onto Mount Sinai, descends down to earth, only to the top of the mountain, though, not the whole way. But then he's not content with that. So now God descends right down to ground level. I mean, God literally wants to camp out among his people. And so he fills this portable tent right there, and the tabernacle was in the center of the camp. So all the Israelites camping around the outside, and the presence of Yahweh is going to come down and fill this space. So great is God's desire to dwell with his people that this is what he does. No other God was like this. No other deity was thought to be like this. All these other ancient pagan deities, they were just off doing their thing in their heavenly spaces. God is the opposite. He's moving toward his people. He's wanting to dwell with them. He's relentlessly pursuing them. Even here in the book of Exodus, God is Emmanuel. Long before Jesus, God is Emmanuel. He is God with us and among us and with his people Israel in the form of the tabernacle. Now, there's a lot of detail that you could go into with the tabernacle. I think a lot of people get turned off because there's all these basins for washing and altars and poles and arcs, and you can't quite make sense of how it all gets put together. So let me just give you a holistic way of thinking about the tabernacle. When you step back from all the details, this is basically what the tabernacle represents. It is the space where heaven and earth intersect. I don't say that just as a, as a cute phrase. In all seriousness, biblically, theologically, the tabernacle was the realm where heaven and earth overlapped. Because if God's presence is there, by definition, heaven is there, a piece of heaven. God is a heavenly God, a heavenly being. So immediately, this becomes more than just an earthly space. This is a heavenly realm filled with the presence of God, and yet it's a tent. It's still on the desert sand. It's still on ground level, and so this is also an earthly space. It's the place where heaven and earth come together. So let me unpack that a bit for you. When you step into the tabernacle, just try to picture this. You step into this space, and the air is thick with incense. The incense was this beautiful aroma, partly to offset the smell of all the animal sacrifices, but it would have filled the inside of the tabernacle and created this kind of haze 
So you can't quite see clearly. You're sort of looking through a fog. And what you're looking at are the inner walls of the tabernacle, and they have embroidered on them pictures of angels called cherubim. So you're looking through a haze, and through the fog, these angels would have looked like they were suspended in midair. This is replicating the heavenly throne room of God. The whole thing is designed to give you the sense that you are in, you've been transported from a purely earthly realm into a heavenly realm where God has his throne. In fact, the Bible's explicit about this in Hebrews. It says that the sanctuary on earth, the tabernacle on earth, was a copy of the one in heaven. It was a replica of the one in heaven. When God gave these instructions to Moses, he was symbolically recreating what the heavenly throne room was like with the angels worshiping God around his throne. So when you get into the inner part of the tabernacle, the most holy place, you see there the Ark of the Covenant, this little box really, on, it, on its own pretty unimpressive. But this was the throne of God. This was the focal point of the presence of God in the tabernacle. This is where God made atonement for Israel's sins, where he cleansed the sins of Israel. Above the Ark of the Covenant, there were these two huge angels covered in gold, two cherubim touching each other. All this, again, replicating the idea of this: you're in heaven. This is the heavenly throne room of God come down to earth. It's like an outpost of heaven. So the tabernacle is representing this heavenly space, this worshiping angelic community. And at the same time, it's representing something very earthy. A lot of commentators have noticed that in the story of the tabernacle, there are all these links back to the creation story. God gives Moses these instructions for the building of the tabernacle. He gives it to him in six sets of instructions. Six stages for building the tabernacle. And then the seventh set of instructions is for the Sabbath, for the day of rest. Now, what does that sound like to you? There's a beautiful symmetry here with the days of creation, with Genesis 1 and 2. Just as God created the world in six days and then rested, now God is giving Moses these six sets of instructions for building a tabernacle and then a day of rest. You get the sense the tabernacle is connected to creation. That what God's doing here is a work of new creation. He's renewing the world. He's redeeming the world. He's bringing something new out of the old. To unpack that a little bit more, if you focus on the sixth set of instructions that God gives for the building of the tabernacle, the last set of instructions, he says, I'm going to put my spirit on this guy called Bezalel. He was a tradesman. And God says, I'm going to place my spirit on Bezalel for the work of the tabernacle, all the stone masonry, all the wood cutting, all the metal work. He's going to be my guy, and he's going to do it under the power of the spirit. It's the only time in Exodus that the Holy Spirit is mentioned in connection with this guy, Bezalel. Now, again, if you're listening for it in the creation, in the context of the creation story, what does this sound like? On the sixth day of creation, God creates a human being and makes him his agent of creative work in the world. And now in the sixth set of instructions, the last set of instructions for the tabernacle, God says, I'm going to place my spirit on this guy. Just as he breathed into Adam in the beginning, now he places his spirit on this guy, Bezalel, to bring forth new work of creation, this new dwelling place for God's spirit. And if you're not convinced by all of that, which you're not, I can tell by your glazed eyes, just have a look at one other detail in the tabernacle that I think reinforces the same sort of idea. 
There's a lampstand in the tabernacle. We didn't read this bit, but one of the articles in the tabernacle is a lamp, and it gives light to what's going on in the tabernacle. But let me read you the description of the lampstand, and you just listen and see if you can hear any echoes of the creation story in this. Uh, It's Exodus 25, 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft, and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three to one side, three to the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. What does that sound like? The lampstand is modeled on a tree. It's supposed to look like a tree. There's so much nature imagery in there, all the branches and the flower cups and the buds and the blossoms. In the context of the creation story, what the lampstand represents is the tree of life. This is like a mini garden of Eden taking shape here in the middle of the desert. This is such a beautiful story that's unrolling here. That right in the beginning, humanity eats the forbidden fruit and so they're barred from the tree of life. They can't eat from the tree of life, which represents eternal life in relationship with God. They lose all that. They're banished from the garden. But here we are, a little bit further along in the biblical story, and now the tree of life reappears. Symbolically, but here it is, in the tabernacle, in the desert. It's like God is saying, I haven't given up on you. I haven't banished you forever, but I'm giving you a sign that I'm coming for you. I'm going to move towards you, and I'm going to draw you towards me, and you are going to be able to eat again from the tree of life. God's got a plan here. He's got a big plan. The story of the tabernacle is about a lot more than the tabernacle. It's about God's purpose to restore what was lost, to redeem us, to save us, to come and rescue us in spite of our own sin, to make a way back for us, back to the tree of life. And that's just the lampstand. Every part of the tabernacle is significant, but what it all comes together to represent is this overlapping space between heaven and earth. The tabernacle is a replica of the heavenly throne room, and then it's a little microcosm of the Garden of Eden. Right here in the desert, God's created an oasis. He's created a paradise. He's created a little Garden of Eden to show that once again, He is providing a way for humanity to be reconciled to Him and to enjoy what was lost in the beginning, communion with the living God. It's a great picture, isn't it? The symbolism is so rich. The story is so powerful. And all this ultimately points us to Jesus. So the tabernacle became a really important part of Israel's life. This is where they worshipped. This is where the priests did their job. This is where God's presence resided. It's where sacrifices were offered all the way through Old Testament Israel. And when they got to the land... The promised land, Canaan, eventually, under Solomon, they built a more permanent structure called the temple in Jerusalem. But the temple just did exactly the same thing that the tabernacle did while Israel was mobile. It was the place where the presence of God resided, the overlapping space between heaven and earth. That's how it was thought about, this intersecting place where heaven and earth come together. Now, all this takes us through to the New Testament and to the way in which Jesus connects to the tabernacle. So flick over to John chapter 1, verse 14. Here is a statement about Jesus that connects to what we've been saying. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace 
and truth. Now, the Word is clearly Jesus. That's who John's referring to here. But when he says the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, those words made his dwelling, that's just one word in Greek, and it's the word for tabernacle. It's the equivalent of the same word used back in the Old Testament to describe this portable tent that Israel carried around. So if you were going to translate John 1.14 literally, you would say the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Or as one writer put it, the word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. So think about the story. God is so committed to dwelling with us and among us. He doesn't just leave it at the cloud and fire doesn't just leave it at Mount Sinai, doesn't even just make a tabernacle to dwell in. He goes another step and becomes a tabernacle. That's what the New Testament reveals to us. That God doesn't just create a tabernacle now. He becomes a living, breathing tabernacle, a tabernacle in human form, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. That's who Jesus is. He's the embodiment of the presence of God. He carries around within him the fullness of deity, the fullness of God's presence in human form. And so Jesus, in a sense, is that space where heaven and earth come together. It's one way of thinking about Jesus. He represents this heavenly reality because he is God, and yet he's fully human. He's a man. He's walking the dusty roads of Palestine. That's why Jesus began his public ministry by saying, the kingdom of heaven has come near in his own body. He brings God near. He brings the kingdom of heaven near. And by the way, where did he say those words? Anybody know? in the wilderness, not in the temple. And this is one of the things that irked the Jewish leaders so much about Jesus because to their thinking, if you're going to come as a Messiah, you better be connected to the temple. That's where it's all happening. That's where God's presence is. That's where sacrifice is. It's the heart of Judaism. And Jesus didn't really have a lot of time for the temple. In fact, he said at one point, someone greater than the temple is here, talking about himself. Didn't spend a lot of time there. Instead, he goes out to the wilderness where Israel had been. Not the same wilderness, but symbolically, he's out in the wilderness. And from there, he says, the kingdom of heaven has come near. Once again, in the wilderness, God is building a tabernacle. But now it's the true and living tabernacle of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the real tabernacle. He fulfills everything that the tabernacle represented in the Old Testament. The presence of God and the dwelling place where heaven and earth come together. And so then Jesus dies on the cross. And in that moment, the, the curtain in the physical temple in Jerusalem is torn in two, representing the fact that now that Jesus has taken our sin upon himself, the presence of God is no longer locked away in a room of a temple or in a room in a tent, but is freely available now to all those who belong to Jesus. The presence of God is unleashed into the world. And Jesus pours out his spirit upon his followers in Acts chapter 2. And then here's the question. Where today is the tabernacle of the living God? If you look around today, where's the tabernacle? Where's the temple now? It's not in Jerusalem even if the temple was standing still in Jerusalem, we would not as Christians point to that and say that's the true biblical spiritual temple because now that Jesus has come, it is not. Where is the tabernacle today? It's us. Our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, Scripture says. And it's not just a nice way of thinking about yourself or your body as a Christian. This is the biblical reality that we carry around the presence of God because we're filled with the Spirit. We belong to Jesus. 
The Spirit of God inhabits us in the same way he inhabited the tabernacle. But there's a greater reality to this. This is not just an individual reality that we are filled with the Spirit of God. This is also a communal reality. I want to read you something that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where he picks up on all this temple tabernacle language. Listen to this in 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. So Paul's not just saying you individually are a tabernacle of God and you individually are a tabernacle of God. That's true, but that's not his point here. He's saying you together are now the living tabernacle of the presence of God. The church of God on earth is the new tabernacle. Everything the tabernacle represented for Israel in Exodus, every, all of its significance and its meaning and its function, all of that now is taken up through Jesus by the church today in the world. We are the true tabernacle of the Spirit of God. That means we are this unique space, if you like, where the presence of God dwells in a unique way. God has chosen the church to be a sanctuary for his presence, just as he chose the tabernacle in the Old Testament. When we come together to worship, when we come together to hear from God's word, when we come together to have fellowship with each other, when we come together to take the Lord's Supper, we're not just coming to a spiritual club. We're coming together individually as living stones, every one of us a living stone being built into a spiritual temple with Jesus as the cornerstone. And the tabernacle, the temple, is taking shape again on earth. And the presence of God fills our gatherings in a unique way. It's not about how you feel, but this is true regardless of what your emotions say or what your experience of a church service is like. Jesus said, when two or three gather in my name, there I am. There is a unique and distinct way in which the Spirit of God is present with us, in which God himself is present among us when we gather together. Of course, the Spirit's always with you if you're a Christian. 24-7, the Spirit of God is with you. And yet, when we gather as Christians, there is a distinct presence of God. There is a unique presence of God that simply is different to how God is with us at other times. That's why Jesus says, two or three are gathered. There I am. God bestows his blessing in a unique way in the gathering of his people. God bestows his name. God bestows his power and his presence uniquely and distinctly when his people gather together as a tabernacle. You might go away this morning feeling no different than when you came. That's fine. This is not about how emotionally charged you get through a particular service. It's not about whether you feel like you get something out of these times for you. In fact, that can be a very consumeristic way of looking at things. This is about acknowledging the spiritual reality of what is happening here, whether or not we see it, whether or not we feel it, that the Spirit of God is coming to dwell among us as He dwelt in the tabernacle of old. And that means that these gatherings here today in such an inauspicious place as this, in a school gym, even so, this right now represents the overlapping realm between heaven and earth. Hard as it might be to get your head and heart around that, these times represent an overlapping space between heaven and earth, where heaven and earth meet in a unique way because God is among us here in a unique way. 
That's got the power, I think, to reinvigorate your view of the church and certainly to reinvigorate your view of church services. I mean, imagine if you got up this morning and rather than saying, I'm going to church today, you said, I'm going to go to the realm where heaven and earth intersect. Awesome. Imagine, imagine inviting a friend to church. Not do you want to come to church with me, but do you, would you, are you interested in going to a realm where heaven and earth themselves overlap? They're going to think they're walking onto the set of a science fiction movie or something. You might not want to make that kind of invitation. But that, that is reality. That's it, not, not just a thing Christians say. That biblically is what is taking shape here. Regardless of feelings, regardless of experiences and all that, this is, this is spiritually what is taking place. Because the living God is among us in a way that is unique, in a way that is distinct. And he chooses these times to presence himself among his people in a unique and manifest way. That should, I think, lead us to make a little bit more of these gatherings in our lives, prioritize them a little bit more in our schedules. I know that's hard to do sometimes, but if we, the bigger our view is of the church, the bigger our view is of what these gatherings represent, the more likely we're going to be to make these gatherings a real priority in our lives. I know that's hard to do sometimes. The weather's getting warmer. There's other things to do on Sunday mornings, other options. You want to take off to the beach. Maybe, I know for some of you, it's the only day of the week that you have off. I know that's life for some families. It's the only time you've got, and you want to spend it with a family. You want to spend it with the kids. You want to throw the bikes in the, in the car and, and head off to the park. But I think we've got to step back from this and ask ourselves, who are we? Who are we as individuals? Who are, are we just individual Christians here, or are we part of something bigger? See, God's not just saving individual Christians. He's building a people. He's building a tabernacle. And he asks that that tabernacle takes visible expression in the gathering of his people. So you've got to ask, where are you leading your family? What's important to you? How you want to shape your kids? Who are you as a couple? Where are you heading? Are you willing to say, this is going to be a bedrock priority? Because I want to align my priorities. I want to align the, fa- the, the priorities of my family with the priorities of God. I want to value what God values. And God certainly seems to place an enormous value on the gathering of his people. So are you willing to say, whether or not you feel like it, that you will make these times important because they're important to God? I heard of a family recently that's done this, and they were saying, for them, it's the fact that they've constantly got invitations for their kids coming up on Sunday mornings. There's parties, there's playdates, there's Saturday night overnight sleepovers, all kinds of things. And, and if they were saying yes to all this, they'd barely ever make it to church. So they've decided as a family that these gatherings are going to be their top priority. And that means for them saying no to other things. It means that if the kids get invited to parties on Sunday mornings, they're going to say no. It means that if the kids are invited to the play date and it's going to be an overnight to Sunday morning, they'll say no. There's a cost and a sacrifice, but they're willing to do that because they want this to be the bedrock rhythm of their life as a family. They don't want it to be a question every Sunday of are we going to go to church? It's not even a debate. This is just, this is who they are as a family. The fact that this has become a question, that we decide every Sunday whether or not we're going to go to church, shows us how much our culture has contaminated our faith. This is not a question. This is not a debate. This is our identity as Christians. This is who we are, that you are a living stone in the temple of God and God bestows his presence here. This is incredibly valuable and significant in the biblical story. And if we want to align our lives with a biblical story, it means making a practical commitment to prioritize these gatherings and let other things orbit around them. Let other things be structured around them. 
So I want to gently, lovingly encourage you, challenge you on that one. What level of priority do these gatherings have for you? Maybe it's a good Sunday to be preaching on this, middle of the school holidays. You can tell the ones that aren't here, listen to the podcast. What level of priority? Not, not, just, not just because I'm saying it, not because you feel guilty, but to get a vision of what the gathered church means in the biblical story. What level of priority are you going to give these gatherings? Is this going to be the first thing that you brush off when something else comes up? Or are you going to say, this is who we are. This is, this is my identity, not just an individual Christian, because my culture tells me that it's all about the individual. But I'm part of a spiritual community, and that community matters to God. Are you willing to say, regardless of how I feel, I'm going to be here? Regardless of how tired I am, I'm going to be here? Regardless of what was happening yesterday, what's happening for the rest of today, what I've got on for the rest of the day, regardless of what the kids are like in the morning, regardless of if you've had a big fight as a husband and wife, regardless of whether you feel like it or not, or what's happening in your life, or what kind of headspace you are, are you willing to say, I'm going to be there at 10 o'clock? Because this is important to God, and my life is about more than just what I want or what I feel like in a given moment. Let me wrap this up by reading to you the story from a woman in our church of her experience in being part of these gatherings. She told me her story, and she's given me permission to share a bit of her story with you this morning. For the past three years, I've suffered from severe depression and anxiety. For a terrible time, it was with me day and night. As I've fought to become well, it has become more episodic. Long periods of endless episodes stripped me of my ability to accomplish menial tasks. Leaving the house became utterly terrifying. A people person, first I couldn't be in big groups, then in small groups, then I couldn't manage one-on-one, and yet church was the last to go. I felt safe here for the longest time. And when eventually I woke up one Sunday and realized that fear had come here too, it was really devastating. When an episode happens at church or threatens to happen or the effects of a week of it happening too often suddenly creep up on me, I seek out solitude as quickly and quietly as I can. I've hidden in bathroom cubicles, locker rooms, random unlocked craft rooms. She's talking about rooms around the school. When it's at its worst, I head back to my car and just wait and breathe. In the midst of these episodes, I know nothing of who God is. I feel he has abandoned me, and I'm full of anger and fear, and yet I'm here. In healthier times in my life, when I've known God to be both good and unknowable, I have obediently made this a habit in my life, an act of regular worship, and my life is structured around it. So in this time of darkness, my momentum propels me forward. My obedience blesses me and protects me in a time when all I can do is put one foot in front of the other and follow the pattern of my life. If I can leave the house, I get in the car. If I can leave the car, I come in the doors. And then I stay as long as I can, as close as I can. I offer everything and I do it here. In the bathroom, in random craft storage areas, in the car park. This is my battlefield and the sight of many of my triumphs and defeats. And somehow, when the battles are over, and I've won the war, I will still be here. Church brings us together and gives us the regular opportunity to give generously of ourselves to each other 
as we journey alone with God together. Our presence is an offering to God. And even if all we can do is passively attend, I believe He is able to use it to bless others. My life isn't just about me. It's about God and about those around me. And on a Sunday morning, this congregation is who is around me. Amazing story, hey? And most of us have no idea that that's going on right in the midst of our community. And what an amazing thing to say, my life is about more than me, that she can recognize, even with the struggle she's carrying, her life's about more. And amazingly, that even her mental illness is about more than her, that God is using these times and this gathering and you to heal, to bring life, to help her on her road to recovery. I think that question should sit with us, shouldn't it? That statement, my life is about more than just me. It's about more than what I might feel like doing on a Sunday. It's about acknowledging what is important to God. It's about acknowledging who I am and this community that I'm a part of. I pray that we'd get a bigger vision of who and what the church is in the biblical story as fulfilling the glory of what the tabernacle was in the Old Testament. And I pray that out of that conviction, not obligation, not condemnation, but out of that conviction, deep conviction, that we might commit before God that these times will be a bedrock priority in our lives as well. So that as we gather together week after week, year after year, journey with each other over the course of our lives, that each Sunday, 10 o'clock, the tabernacle will take shape again. That God's Spirit will fill us again, unique in power, unique in grace, unique from all other times in our life. And we will worship Him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. God, sometimes we talk about leaving church and going out back into the real world. And we talk about going back to our real lives. But God, we want to turn that on its head and say that this time and place is the real world. Not, not that we're perfect, God, not that our services are anything special, but Lord, we want to acknowledge that this time and this place and this space and these people, this is real life. Because here we are grounded in your reality. Here we are connected to you. And God, in a moment, as we sit here with this bread in our hands and this cup of juice in our hands, God, we are doing the most real thing in this world. And we are anchoring ourselves to the most real thing in history, the cross of Christ, the most powerful thing, the greatest reality to take hold of our lives. And so, God, we pray that you would anchor us in these times because we need them for our own soul because we are going to go out into a not-so-real world this week full of distortions and lies and perversions and illusions of reality. And we need to be grounded in your grace. We need, we need the encouragement of each other. We need to hear from you, from your word in these times. We need to gather around your table and take communion, God. We need to anchor ourselves to the cross so that we can withstand this week all the ways that our culture is going to pull at us and squeeze us into its mold and erode our hearts and our spirits. We want to orientate our lives fully towards you in this time so that we remain focused on you through this week until we gather again next week and do it all again. 
Father, prevent us from just seeing these times as mundane, trivial, and just too familiar. But lift up our eyes to see the church as you see her, in her glory as well as her brokenness, as the tabernacle of your presence. We thank you for the church and thank you for making us a part of this temple, of this tabernacle. In Christ's name. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.